Um, so uh, this morning we're going to have a circle time with Jesus. Uh, you know, at circle time, we all gather around, we sit in a circle, we sing songs, and we tell stories, right? And that's kind of what we do at church. And it's a lot more effective than me reading you off hundreds and hundreds of do's and don'ts. Because the do's and don'ts you think about in your head and you say, eh, is that worth it? I don't know about that. And then usually it just gets flushed right out from where it came. But a story sticks with you. That's why teachers of little kids use stories. Because stories are the only thing that works. And let me tell you, if your teaching method works with kids, it'll work with anybody, but not the other way around. So we're going to have a little story time. A little story time with Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me to Mark chapter 4, 26 through 34. I will be reading out of the NIV, which is the not inspired version for those of you in the faith camp. That's what they call the, the literal translations. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, and then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable, what story shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he also explained everything. So my question to you is, why did Jesus tell stories? Why did he tell so many stories? It said he actually, he, he didn't even teach them at all except through stories. He told stories everywhere he went. You'd think that if he told stories all the time, and that was his method of teaching, we should tell a few more stories and a little, a little fewer lists of do's and don'ts. Because the do's and don'ts are not that effective just in terms of on paper. The story, how, whatever it is about the story, the story somehow gets its way into our heart, and then it produces something. It grows. It continues to reveal things over time. We discover things about it. We can harvest from it. It almost has a life of its own. Well, one reason, I'm sure that there are many reasons why Jesus told stories, but one reason is that he wants us to discover truth for ourselves. So when I was 14, I was looking forward with excitement to having my first car already. I mean, I wanted to drive more than probably more than just about anything, even more than baseball at that time, um, which was 
that, that's a lot. Um, but uh, I, I love things with power. I loved the idea of having freedom, being able to go where I want to go um, and not have to just depend on when my parents give me rides to places. And I mean, it was, that was what I wanted. And so my dad, who's an engineer, uh, he felt it would be the prudent thing for me to know how to maintain a vehicle before I could own a vehicle or drive a vehicle. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, he, one day he decided he wanted, to he wanted to teach me to change the oil in the car. Seems pretty simple, right? Well, I first had to read the manual for the car, um, and then I had to go through and pick out the tools, and he's telling me all the things I need to remember and the things I'm already not doing right, even though I haven't even jacked the car up. And, uh, I mean, he wasn't being mean about it. It's just, I mean, he's a very graceful and gentle man. He's just, he's an engineer. He thinks through, literally, like his brain works like a manual. And so um, I'm, I'm getting a little more frustrated. Like, I'm getting so frustrated because I can't actually do anything without being constantly redirected and trying to figure out what I'm not doing right. And I'm getting a wrench, oh, don't, you know, make sure that the wrench sits on, on tightly and then only, you know, do a half turn, take it off, make sure you don't strip the bolt, um, don't, don't screw the, uh, you know, the, the base pan on too tightly. Like he's going through all these different things and finally, like, I just lost it. I mean, I'm a 14-year-old boy who just wants to get the oil out of the car and get on so I can go do something else. And uh, so I throw the tools down. I walk up and says, I can't learn from you. And I, and I go in the house. Um, and I'm, I'm uh, trying to figure out, like, holding intention. Well, I need a, I want my car. How am I going to learn? This is, am I going to have to just bear and grit through this? And my dad comes in in a moment of brilliant wisdom. I'm not sure what was motivating him uh, at this point. And he said, Jeff, maybe it would be better if you learned how to rebuild the engine from scratch before you get a car. <laughs> and maybe you should call your uncle to help you because you and I aren't working together real well. So I've, my, uh, I bought a car for, for a dollar for my cousin that didn't work. Um, and uh, it, it was uh, a 1965 Volvo 122S, which is a little, um, it's just a little old car. Um, lots of character, uh, and so we pulled it up to my uncle's house, and my uncle had told me to get a Haynes manual. I didn't know what one of those was, but it's basically a layman's manual for a non-mechanic. It has lots of pictures and things like, and it uses regular people language, um, and, but it can tell you pretty much how to do anything with a car's engine. Um, so I got one for that, for that model, and I show up at my uncle's house, you know, after school's out in the summer, uh, you know, on one day, and I'm thinking, you know, my uncle is going to show me how to rebuild this engine. Um, because, and I was like, oh, and great, because I, I can do that. It's my car, and then I'll be able to, to use it, and I won't have to deal with, you know, the constant litany of manuals from my dad. Um, so after my dad left, he drove off. I'm sitting there with the car. My uncle comes in and he says, well, yes, you've got the manual. I'm going to be inside doing a, uh, another project. If you have any questions or get stuck, come and ask me and I'll, I'll fill you in. And he walks out and I'm left alone in a 4,000 square foot shop with a hydro lift that I've never used before and a car that will not move unless I push it. 
a manual and a bunch of tools. And I'm sitting there trying to figure out what to do. And the air compressor goes on and like freaks me out. And I get super scared because it's really loud. And uh, then I'm, I, I kind of muddle around for hours. My heart, you know, starting to beat really fast because I don't know what I'm doing. But slowly I calm down and I say, well, I'm going to have to disassemble the engine. So I look in the manual and there's engine disassembly. Okay, I turn to step one, I look at the picture, I look in the car, and I just slowly start fumbling around and doing the work. Well, it took 230 hours, but I successfully rebuilt the engine of the car. Um, and that was not because I'm so great, not at all. And I did have to ask my uncle a lot of questions, many times a day. But I'd go in, and I'd say, I'm doing this. And he's like, well, you might want to try that. That's it. He didn't come out and do the work for me. Well, in that process, I discovered a few things. Now, my dad could have t put the, that same car, because he had had a car similar to that, um, you know, when, uh, and he could, he was very mechanically inclined. He could have put out a beach chair on the driveway and told me how to disassemble and rebuild the engine from the crankshaft up without looking at a manual. He could have just told me what to do and I wouldn't have learned a darn thing. But because I had to go through the painful experience of discovering life for myself, all of that learning not just about the car, although I can say I do understand how an internal combustion engine works and all the subsystems. I mean, I can't, cars these days you look under and it's all plastic and computers, but at least if you can get all that off and just see the original parts, I can tell you what all, you know, I understand the subsystems. And that, so not only was there learning about that thing itself, but all of the, all of the other deeper and greater truths about learning for yourself and growing and respecting the people that know more than you and gaining something to be able to take care of the car that you built and probably save me from a lot of tickets and accidents and other things because like there was so much that came that I discovered along the way. Well, Jesus wants us to discover truth for ourselves. That's why Jesus didn't just say, do this, do that, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, because he would hit with our own filters and nothing would ever really get written on our hearts. But when he tells us stories, when Jesus tells us stories, we take the story of the garden, and then when we're out working in the garden, it comes alive and we discover things. Or we're in the shop and we're building a car, rebuilding a car's engine, we discover things. Or whether... You know, we're doing financial stuff with our business or lending money to, to a friend or, you know, dealing with somebody who owes us something. Like all the things in our everyday life, we take the story that Jesus told because it's easy to remember and we carry it with us and all of a sudden it unfolds and the truth, the truth that's in his word comes alive and we're in a position or our hearts are positioned to allow God to write it on our hearts, which is where it needs to be, not in our heads. Our heads, our brains are really good students of what's in our heart. But if you always are looking at trying to weigh out philosophically anything in your head before it gets written in your heart, you'll not have much ever reach your heart. But when you carry around a story, 
It's like a time bomb you don't know is there. And that's a great thing. Why else? Well, Jesus wanted to hide a revolution in plain sight. You know, stories are the most potent and memorable ways to convey truth. Not just because they use this great flowery, flowery language, but because there are things embedded or hidden in them that aren't said explicitly that you find later, as I was talking about. So how many of you noticed that this guitar on stage is out of place during worship? How many of you noticed that? I mean, it kind of makes sense for a guitar to be on stage where there's a bunch of musicians playing. But this guitar is not plugged into anything. And you could clearly see that. There's, not, there's no music stand in front of it. It, it. it was obviously, if you, as I'm drawing attention to it, you can see that this was not part of what the band was using today. Um, and I could also tell you that this, um, when our band was playing uh, 10 years ago, we had the, the privilege to go out and play at a little showcase in a dive bar in Nashville. It wasn't very, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of glory in it. But um, we, uh, somebody, um, uh, somebody blessed us with one of Bruce Springsteen's guitars. And it's worth about $75,000. He played it, the boss played it on tour, um, and it was just sitting here, right, right on stage. Now, if you had known it was Bruce Springsteen's guitar, you would have been looking at it and thinking about it and probably distracted by it and wondering why nobody's touching it or if somebody's going to walk off the stage with it. But because it was just sitting here, it was kind of just a part of the story. You didn't notice it until I'm drawing attention to it. Now, this is actually just a replica of Bruce Springsteen's guitar. This is not actually it, so I, I did tell a little fib just to highlight there, but... Um, it, it is an exact replica. But suffice it to say, you can, in a story, you can hide things in plain sight. And Jesus had to hide the truths he was talking about, about the kingdom, in his stories. Because the truths he was presenting are not, were not palatable to the authorities and the powers of the day. They were threatening to the people who had authority, not only to the people who, like the Roman governors and things, but he was, he was a threat to the religious leaders. And if he had just spoken plainly about what he was really going to do, he never would have made it three years. But because the revolutionary ideas were hidden in the story, he made it all the way to the end and finished his assignment because they could not pinpoint exactly why he was a threat. He was just telling stories and healing people. But in a story, there are layers of truth. And so on the surface, there are many things about this story and about many stories that anybody, whether you believe in God or not, you could say, okay, I can follow it with you. That's helpful. That's a, a great insight. And there are things on the surface that that he or in his stories that would just make sense or resonate with anybody in the time. So let's take a look at a couple of those. One is sowing and reaping, right? If, if whatever kind of seed you plant, that's the kind of plant that grows. It's kind of the basic reciprocity that's in creation, that's part of the universe. 
Um, you know, the, the Lord said in Genesis that, you know, these things will remain till the end of the time. Um, there's daytime and nighttime, the seasons, and uh, seed time and harvest, or sowing and reaping. Like, these are kind of their fundamental laws of creation that anybody, whether you believe in God or not, you can acknowledge that that's how the world works or how creation works, and you can learn from it or be blessed by it. Um, you, can, you can understand it. It can be a meaningful and valuable truth. So, sowing and reaping, that basic kind of rule of reciprocity, um, where if I'm if I'm nice to Jan, Jan's going to be nice to me. If I show mercy to Denise, Denise probably will show mercy to me. Like there's this, what I sow, I reap. Like you see even, um, like Gandhi said, as you sow, so shall you reap. A man is but the product of his thoughts, what he thinks he becomes. Like he doesn't necessarily have to be a follower of Jesus to recognize that there is a, there's a fundamental law of how the universe works that's present. And so if you were listening to Jesus' stories, whether you believed that he was the Messiah or not, you would say, oh yeah, I, I can follow along with this surface truth. And it is true. Um, you also see that maybe cultivation takes work, right? You, you don't just put a seed in the ground and tomorrow, boom, you pick an apple off the tree. Like there's work that goes into it. There's a, um, you have to grind the soil up and you have to make a nice uh, row for the seed to work. You have to water the seed. You have to protect the plant as it grows. And it takes work to, to kind of thin the fruit and make it sure it's nice. Like there's work that needs to be done to produce a harvest. Um, that also applies to life, right? Uh, harvest requires delayed gratification. So you, uh, you don't just get to press the candy dispenser and just, you know, every time and get a candy. Like, life does not deliver pre-packaged lunches, right? You have to go in and make something. You have to go produce something with the gifts and the talents that God's given you. And whether you believe or recognize that God gave you those gifts or talents, it's recognized universally that a harvest requires some delayed gratification. I have to learn to work first and enjoy the reward second. And that's a good rule for life. It's a truth that applies to us as believers as well as would be universally accepted in the world. And the last one, life has seasons right? There are seasons to plant. There are seasons to harvest. There are seasons in our life, like Ecclesiastes says, um, there are seasons to have joy. There are seasons to mourn. Like there's generally, life is not just one kind of flat line of uniformity. There are different seasons. And that's something, whether you're a believer or not, you would recognize is at work in the world. And that is as true for us as it is for anyone. Um, and so these are, these are totally applicable and useful truths for us to know as believers, but they're also kind of the shallow end of the pool that anyone in the world would be able to resonate with these ideas independent of their ideas about God. But, so when he told these stories, there are many that probably just kind of resonated or um, they, uh, they worked or they kind of... Um, identified with those surface-level truths, and that's all they saw in the story, and that's great. Um, and they took them with them, they remembered the story, and then the story, like I was saying, is like a time bomb. Then later, deeper truths start to show themselves. And so, some of the deeper truths, I'd like to go through um, uh, some of these that might be a little less applicable, not less applicable, but less obvious, 
And it has to do with our life of faith. Like there is the realm of the seen and the unseen in this story. There is the ground and there's the plants, right, that come up and the kind of the, the, the life of the garden that exists above the ground, which is like our, the, kind of the physical realm that we see, the temporal realm, the, the, the life, everything that exists kind of in the physical realm that we can see with our eyes and we can touch with our hands. And then there's what's under the ground. And what's under the ground is where the life actually starts. Everything that you see around us has a spiritual origin. We are spiritual beings, even though you see, we can see each other's bodies and faces and smiles and things. We are a spirit being. There's something underneath the ground and where we, where we derive our nutrients, our sustenance, our life actually comes from what's below the surface, what we can't see. Um, oftentimes, our attitudes and our, um, our behaviors and the way we think about the world, right, is we, we, can, we see our activity, but there is a spiritual root, what lies beneath. We, the, the world might call it the unconscious, but what we, and what we might see, that is the spiritual nature of things. And so there is the seen and the unseen, and everything that we see has an origin in what is unseen. And so when we plant something into the ground, there's kind of, by nature, an act of trust when we cover that seed up with the ground and trust that there is, in fact, life in there. It's going to find water, develop roots, and then in a few days, nothing will look like it's happening, and then a shoot comes out, and we have a plant. So there's a relationship between what's seen and what's unseen. There is the word that lives. So Here's some mustard plants. And until we moved to the country and planted a gardens of our own, I really had no appreciation for a mustard plant. Um, uh, my wife wanted to plant a peach tree, and then I got carried away and planted like 30 fruit trees because we had the space. And uh, then it was, we had to put up deer fence, and then I had like, you know, it just turned into this kind of whole project with a life of its own. And... You know, I wanted to keep this orchard nice, right? So there are mustard plants that grow up in the middle, and so it's like I have my little ride-along mower, and I go and I tried to mow all the mustard plants. Well, if you know anything, if you've tried to mow mustard plants, it basically just swirls the vines around in the mower, takes the, the leaves and the flowers off, and then they're still there. And then a week later, it looks as though you were never there. I mean, it is the most resilient plant known to man. Um, and so then I, I was like, I'm getting frustrated with this. I need to get these mustard plants out of my orchard. So I get down and I say, I'm going to pull them suckers out. I put on big gloves and I start pulling. I'm like, what's holding on to that thing? Like, so, I mean, I put my full weight into it. And I mean, I, have, I am literally leaning, holding on to this mustard plant with all of my weight back. It's not budging. And why is that? Well, so I start digging out and around, and at the base of the mustard plant, it gets all barky, and it has this crook that literally squeezes the dirt. And after that crook, there's a taproot that goes down about three or four feet into the ground. And you just can't pull them out. I mean, you can get down and, like, saw it off, but then in four weeks, that plant's right back. I mean, are you... Are you catching kind of the spiritual significance here. 
Well, the, the other thing is, is that, that mustard plants... Uh, Mustard plants also serve a great utility and purpose in the garden um, because the bees that come in and are attracted to the mustard plant and pollinate the mustard plant also then it attracts the whole insect ecosystem that pollinates the rest of the garden. And without the mustard plants, really, there wouldn't be a garden. And so... I had to repent of trying to mow the mustard plants out of my, out of my orchard. But there is, you know, there is, um, there's then also something about the size of the mustard seed. And we've often, I, probably it's, it, it's common to hear, you know, teachings on this, that say, you know, if you have only this much faith, only the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, you know, and, um, and I think there's, there's definitely some truth to that. I'm not, but I, I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus was saying. So the mustard seed, like saying, was a kind of a cultural idiom. It would be like us saying it's not worth a penny or it's not worth two bits, it's not worth a quarter um, to say it's like a mustard seed. The mustard seed was just something that was commonly known to be small and insignificant. Um, and so I was saying it's not so much that your faith is small and insignificant, but I would say it is that a person of any stature or of any pedigree or of any class or of any kind of any way that the world might say the person is not significant. It doesn't matter what your outward significance is, but any person, no matter how significant, can plant any promise and see a harvest from God. Any person of any significance can take any promise big or small, and when the person plants it in faith, will receive a harvest. Faith looks a lot like this. It doesn't look like a guy in a suit telling you all about what to believe in. Faith is a hand that has worked the soil. Faith is a hand that comes and takes the promises that the person knows, the promises she knows, and puts them in the ground with faith that God will bring the harvest. You know, a lot of us are much better seed collectors than we are seed planters. We can collect the seeds and keep them in jars and say, look, I could grow an orchard with that. We take the seed and we turn it into grain and we make bread out of it and never plant it at all. But seeds, my friends, are for planting. In our life of faith, we need the wisdom of a farmer more than the scientific comprehension of a biogeneticist. Our prayers are like seeds. But I want to also say that there is a deep truth. So remember, why did Jesus tell stories? He told them because he wants us to discover truths for ourselves. He also had to be able to hide some of the more offensive and revolutionary ideas about the kingdom in plain sight. 
But the most important thing I believe he wants to do is he wants to show us our Heavenly Father. Who in this story is the real sower? Well, it could be us with the Word, and we're planting in our garden, and that's true. But I would say that the original, the true sower is, is our Heavenly Father, and that the mustard seed, the first mustard seed, was Jesus Christ himself. He was the person who laid aside his power, his glory, and made himself nothing and took on a form of insignificance, of no reputation. He was the one that was born in a stable instead of a palace. He was the one that came from Nazareth, a place where Nathaniel, one of his disciples who became a disciple, said, can anything good from Na- come from Nazareth? He took the place of insignificance, the place of the servant, He became small. Verse 8 says, He humbled himself even to death and death on a cross, and he was buried in a tomb. I want to tell you it may have looked like a burial, but it was really a planting. Three days he stayed in the soil underground. And then he pushed forth in new life as the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, the mustard tree, the tallest of all garden plants, resilient against every person with a lawnmower. (laughs) Every person that's trying to uproot it. And he is there to bless the garden, to see multiplication. I'm telling you, Jesus was the seed. And so if Jesus was the seed, I want to ask you today, who then are the branches and the birds? The branches and the birds in this story. Let me remind you that yet when this tree is planted It grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches, such significant branches that the birds can perch and make nests in its shade. So who then, my friends, are those branches and those birds? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, I am the vine, And you are the branches. We are the branches in this story. We are the ones connected to the vine, to the one true vine from which all life comes. We are connected, whether grafted in or grew natively, whether you came from a Christian family or you got grafted on later in life, whether you were a Jew by birth and can claim lineage to one of the original tribes of Israel, or whether you're just a heathen Gentile that got sowed in later on and just grateful for the glory and grace of God. It doesn't matter. We're all branches. We're branches on the vine in this story, connected to the deepest taproot that can withstand any storm, that can withstand any lawnmower or gardener trying to uproot it, that vine is staying in the ground. And we can be confident that His life force 
will deliver all the nutrients and all the sustenance that we need. You know, when we worship, we even look like branches. The cross looks like a branch. I mean, branches are everywhere. He's hiding them in plain sight for the world. And so who are the birds? Well, I was a bird once. I wasn't connected to the vine. I came and took shade on the people that went before me in the body of Christ that were living life from a place of love and service, connected to the vine. We were all birds once, not connected to God, but enjoying the shade that He provides. The birds are the people of this world, running around, not connected, not tethered. But let me tell you, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. It's not our ability to convince them. It's not a a list of a hundred do's and don'ts. It's not a protest sign. These will not lead people to repentance, but shade will. Shade. You can, I mean, I'm telling you, when I, one day when I'm sitting there in the garden, it hit me. That story came alive to me, and I caught a glimpse of his goodness because his goodness, his intention, is not only that I would be connected as a branch, but that through me, He could share his goodness, his shade with the world, all those that are birds flying around. And in a moment, it just, like, when you catch a glimpse of his character, you think, what kind of God is this? He has all power in his hands. And the tools he uses is shade. What kind of shade are you providing Are you frustrated with the birds making nests in your business? (laughs) Trying to shoo them off all the time? Or are you happy to let them kind of sway back and forth and put stress and tension on you all the time and recognizing that one day that bird is going to recognize where his shade comes from? So be the man of God that God's called you to be. Be the woman of God that God has called you to be. Serve the people at your work. Take care of your kids. Turn the other cheek. Be a blessing in small ways and big ways, but be shade to the birds. That is God's goodness. That's how he leads people to himself. That's how he draws people to himself. Jesus was saying, God has sent me to die, but my death will bring eternal life for the world. God is showing his goodness to you through me, and he will show his goodness to the world through you as you believe in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You must serve the people of this world, whether they acknowledge me or not, whether they stay put or not, whether they ever believe in me or not, because I am good, and goodness is goodness through and through. To the people around you, following me will often seem like a death and a burial. 
You're giving up what? You're fasting what? You're going to church again this week? You can't do what? And to you, it also may seem like God still takes you to dark and unknown places. But love wins, my friends. He will resurrect you from every dark place. So don't fear. Don't let your heart be troubled. Love really does win. His plans are perfect and his shade is good. This is not a truth that can be told. It is a truth that must be found. Like a great treasure buried in a field that when a man discovered the treasure, he went and sold all he had to buy the field so that he could have the treasure. And what, my friends, is the treasure? But the Lord himself.